This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Imagine giving up almost everything you know, almost everything you're familiar with, except for one thing, your belief. Imagine crossing an entire ocean to take that one thing you have left to a foreign land, a drastically different land, drastically different people, drastically different beliefs. But it's not the Atlantic Ocean you're crossing, it's the Pacific. And you're not landing in North America, you're leaving North America. You're leaving North America armed with nothing but your belief, and you're landing in China. And your beliefs aren't strong enough. That's just ahead on Trumpet Hour. Welcome back, Trumpet Hour listeners. Many of you are here in the United States, but many are in our brother nation to the north. And joining me from there over a teleconference right now is Abraham Blondeau. He is a trumpet writer born and raised in Canada. And some of you may remember how he and I discussed the Covenant Brothers of Canada and the United States and the relationships between the ancestors of our two nations, as well as Britain, as well as the Jews in the Middle East, in fact. And for all the news that we are constantly barraged by and buried by here in the United States, and Trumpet Hour tries to keep keep up with it and keep you up with it, uh, we could easily miss a major development, not just one event, but an ongoing development that is affecting our Canadian listeners and Canadians across the continent. Mr. Blondeau, can you give us the who, what, when, and where of what so many Canadians are talking about right now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me back on Trumpet Hour. Um, it's it's good to be back and and yeah this has been a, a big story especially the last few months but um, basically in September 2021 uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau he was reelected to a minority government and uh, within a few days of his election there were um, the evidence began arriving of uh, Chinese interference into some of the writings that elected him. These were writings with large populations of, of Chinese Canadians. Um, and so immediately after the election, the trumpet actually was one of the few places that covered this Chinese influence in the election. Uh, but it died down for for a while. But uh, this past year, about three months ago, uh, Global News and the Globe and Mail did some expose showing how uh, the Communist Party of China, they... Uh, have been actively trying to influence Canadian elections through uh, a number of means. Uh, they've been, they've tried to pay off uh, officials. They've infiltrated election staff. 
to try to influence the policies that our elected officials have on towards China. Um, they've done uh, misinformation campaigns against candidates who have a strong um, anti-China message. What that means is they're they're against China's human rights abuses or their uh, imperialism in the South China Sea, for example. So uh, basically, China, um, they're trying to uh, influence the election to have as many pro-Beijing candidates as they can. They use the diaspora community of Chinese people in Canada to do that through different misinformation, intimidation campaigns. Um, and so these exposés just really threw that all in the open. And so what we've been having in Canada the last few months is a back and forth over whether the election was influenced or not. And so where we are right now is the uh, the liberal government uh, of Justin Trudeau. He, he um, appointed David Johnson. He's a former governor general. He's also an old friend of the Trudeau family, um, to investigate the allegations. He was given special clearances to look at uh, intelligence documents. And lo and behold, his he says that his childhood friend, well, he knew Trudeau when he was a little boy, but he said, like, oh, it, it's fine. It was a perfect election. Nothing happened. All those exposés are wrong. And so that's where we're at now, where we're having, there's an argument in government that they still want to investigate it, but Trudeau wants the story to go away. So Chinese influence in Canada's elections initially ignored, as you said there, and now being reported on by two of the largest news companies in Canada. Uh, also, being there has to be significant political pressure to force Trudeau to uh, appoint someone to uh, investigate his own election. Uh, but not enough pressure to keep him from appointing someone who will give him a clean bill of health uh, s seemingly in a, in a biased manner. Uh, if we dig a little deeper into well, first of all, let me ask you, is this, uh, is this something that a lot of people are, are, are talking about in the, you know, in the grocery stores or at the gas pumps? I mean, is this, uh, is this something that's uh, one of the biggest stories in Canada right now? Yeah. For, for those who stay informed, it is uh, a pretty big story. Um, what you'll find is, uh, as I've traveled or I, I've talked to people uh, around different regions of Canada, um, you have a, a segment who, who stay informed, they read the news. And so for them, this is the biggest story right now. But I would say you have a larger segment of the population who don't really care what's going on because there's other things going on, uh, playoffs, sports, uh, the latest Netflix show. So a lot of people aren't following it very closely. But in, if if anyone's watching the um, even the big networks like CBC, Global, CTV, this is on the news almost every day. So most of our listeners, thankfully, I would say probably all of our listeners are in the former category rather than the latter. And we, we thank you for that. Being uh, well-informed is important to you. And uh, in, that, in, in the interest of that, let's dig a little deeper. How did we come to a situation where China has uh, significant influence, I think we can safely say, in Canada, in its policies, in its elections. Yeah, that's. I think that's the missing question from what's been uncovered. Is it's good they're investigating what happened, 
but how do we get to a spot where there's so much pervasive influence by the Communist Party of China? I mean, it's not we're not uh, talking about all the, all the Chinese people, but the Communist Party of China, the the ruling party of China, they, they have a definite agenda that they're um, pursuing in Canada. And when you start peeling back the layer after layer after layer of how this happened, you really see how this is just the tip of the iceberg in, in what China's been doing for the past 50 years in this country. Um, so uh, a lot of the information I'll go over it's, um, is from a book called Claws of the Panda by Jonathan Manthorpe. So if you want to look into this yourself, I suggest you you can uh, you can read that book. He goes into all the details, but we'll we'll go through um, some things that he doesn't have in there as well. But if, to really to really uh, set the stage for China's influence in Canada, you have to go back to the 1880s. Uh, so at that time, there was a big missionary movement in Canada to send uh, to spread uh, Christianity into China. Uh, so you had. Uh, Basically, every church in Canada sent missionaries there. Um, in particular, uh, the Methodists and the United Church of Canada, uh, they had a lot of um, success in mainland China, sending missionaries there. And what you had is you would have, uh, they'd be funded to go over there. They would live there for generations. So you'd have two or three generations of Canadians born in China, so they learn the Chinese language, the culture. They're living there. They're fluent in in, in the language. Um, and then they come back to Canada and they impact Canadian uh, politics and Canadian cu culture. Um, so uh, this this is what they're called. They're called the Mish kids, missionary kids, uh, as they're called. But basically, um, from 1880 to 1949. So 1949 is when the civil war in China stopped between the communists and and the followers of uh, Kai Xing Shek. Um, you had these uh, Canadians living in China. They were really Canada's only official link to the Pacific. So Canada didn't really have a lot of uh, of other uh, people over there or government uh, representation. So they almost had an outside effect on how even the Canadian government viewed China. And so it's, it's actually, it's really interesting. You have these Christian missionaries go over, they start spreading their version of, of the gospel, what they would call it. Um, but then they actually start introducing communism into their Christianity. And so by the second or third generation, when we get to the, the tipping point of the future of China, who would rule it, um, you have these missionaries who are sympathetic to the Communist Chinese Party uh, because it aligns with their social gospel. Um, but also, um, you have, it, they're called the uh, Kuomintang, that's Kai Jing-shek's government, the, the ones who were fighting against Japan with the Americans and the Allies during World War II. They were very corrupt. There's no question about that. They, they were very brutal. And so these uh, Christian missionaries and their children viewed uh, the CCP as the better option for the future of China. And it's pretty interesting. If you look at 
all the important people who formed Canada's foreign policy after World War II are connected to these Mish kids. So, uh, for example, there's Oscar D. Skelton. So he he's the one who created the Department of External Affairs, or like Canada's um, foreign policy department in the government. Uh, Lester B. Pearson, who was a prime minister. Um, uh, Vincent Massey, who was a, a former governor general. Um, they were all connected to this social gospel religion and to Mishkids. And even our first three ambassadors to China were all Mishkids. Ralph Collins, Charles John Small, Arthur Menzies. Um, and so if you if you know anything about this history, those are pretty significant names because these are the men who shaped the future of Canada's foreign policy. And it was all based on this sympathetic view towards communism based on their religious beliefs. So this shows how deeply rooted this, uh, I don't know if you could say it's this uh, a trending uh, bit of news uh, in Canada right now. A lot of people talking about well, uh, China's influence in, in Canada's government in its elections. And uh, as you said there, you, you, you do have to do some digging, but if you, if you do... Uh, you can find how deep those those roots go. As you said, this is generational. This is not just uh, the news of the week, so to speak. Um, something that's uh, uh, again deep rooted and bearing uh, some some pretty frightening fruits at this point. Uh, I think this also shows uh, there's something wrong with the churches when you you go to China to bring the Chinese the Bible and and the gospel and. Uh, as they would would look at it and maybe you do a little bit of that but you also bring back china <laughs> yeah and and as you said you don't it's not the problem so much of bringing china back to canada but bringing the the chinese communist party regime back to canada yeah that's exactly right it's um it's it's just interesting to see how the the Chris, Christianity in Canada, as people know it, um, really set the stage for communism to dominate um, this the Cold War era of Canada. It, it's it's interesting how that happened, and and even as example, there was um, one of the the famous missionaries there. His name is James Endicott. Um, basically, he uh, he saw the um, the corruption of uh, Kai Shing-shek's government, and so he was um, writing to the government, telling them, "You need to start working with the CCP because they're going to be the future of China." He could see the the revolution was boiling in the people. But um, Endicott, he he became. It's interesting. You can there's some excerpts from his journal. Uh, he basically became converted to communism. <laughs> And he actually became an asset of the CCP, where he would feed American intelligence, uh, the intelligence service, pro-CCP information. Um, and he would also uh, try to push the government of Canada in a direction favorably to the CCP. And so he had a massive influence on everything that happened. Um, and I think the, the most stunning... To, so let's kind of connect this this Mish kids, this Christian influence. Well, how does that translate to politics? 
So we talked about some of their kids entered politics, they were diplomats. Or, but the, the main link, and I think this, this is probably the best example of how this, this happened, is um, you had, uh, his name is Paul Lin. He's a, he was a son of a Chinese immigrant to Canada. He's a scholar, intellectual. So he was born in Canada. He was getting, um, he went to college in Canada and the United States. Um, but he was, he went to China and he wanted to be uh, loyal to the CCP because he saw the suffering of, of the Chinese people. He thought the CCP would help. Um, and so Lin, he became, he, he went to China, he came back to North America and he became one of the most important assets the CCP had because he was at a university, McGill University in Montreal. And he was basically telling the American governments and the Canadian governments, you need to uh, recognize Mao Zedong as the leader of China. And so um, both governments, United States and Canada, he became their go-between with the CCP. And he was a known asset of the CCP. He wasn't just an intellectual. He was purposely uh, trying to aid their agenda in North America. And so this Paul Lin guy at McGill University, um, when we get to Pierre Trudeau, so this is the 1960s, um, he actually became uh, connected to uh, Pierre Trudeau and the formation of foreign policy in Canada. So you have this guy named Ivan Head. Um, he, he was... Pierre Trudeau's foreign policy advisor, and he uh, he would call Paul Lin and ask for advice. Well, what do we do about China? How do we do this? How do we do that? So even after Pierre Trudeau became prime minister, so you have just two steps away from the prime minister, you have someone working for the Communist Party of China. And the only reason he was in that position is because the Mish kids pushed for him to be there. So... Some of that might have, might have seemed a little bit obscure, but all of a sudden we come to a very familiar name, Pierre Trudeau, and we see how that influence came uh, just, as you said, only one step away from direct contact. Uh, tell us a little bit about Pierre Trudeau for those of us who uh, haven't been privileged uh, to, to know about that figure. <laughs> yeah, he's, well... To most Canadians, he is the greatest prime minister we've ever had. Um, but uh, this really starts to expose um, some of the things that he did to the country, uh, some of the negative things he did to the country. And so uh, we've covered some older history, some more obscure history, like we said. But when we come to Pierre Trudeau, this was the turning point in Canada-China relations. So in China, you in in the ninth, just a, I'll just give a little bit of context here. 1920s, the Communist Party is formed. They're fighting this this war with uh, Kai Shingshek, who is the the traditional um, government there. Um, they unite to fight against Japan in World War II. Uh, as soon as the war is over, they, a civil war starts, and by 1949. The communists win and they push what's remaining of Kai Shing Shek's followers into Taiwan. And Taiwan remains separate to this day. Um, and so, what Pierre Trudeau did, he visited China twice. 
1949, and then I think in 1960s, he also visited China. Um, and he had a very favorable view of China. He thought Mao was one of the greatest leaders of our modern times. And even during the, the great, um, what Mao called the Great Leap Forward, which killed uh, maybe close to 100 million Chinese people from starvation, uh, Trudeau said it was one of the greatest industrial revolutions of human history. So you, you have this, this very prominent Canadian politician who who is a, a communist sympathizer, but I'm sure we'll talk about that in another program, more about his his brand of communism in Canada. But if we just keep it to his relationship with China, he, he loved China. He thought Canada should have a relationship with them. And so uh, what he did is he employed a lot of Mish kids in his government. He had the CCP guy, Paul Lin, talking in his ear. And so in the lead-up to 1970, he was... Um, telling his government to formally recognize Mao and the CCP as the government of China, which up to this time, it had been Kaixing Chek, who had fought with the Allies in World War II. And so Trudeau was the first Western nation to have this kind of diplomatic reapproachment with China. What's interesting is that China wanted this reapproachment because they needed Western technology. They wanted to have this economic relationship with the West. And so they knew Canada was the way to get to the United States. They called Canada uh, the friend in America's backyard. And so uh, Trudeau, he liked China, but also you had the CCP knew they had these people influencing Trudeau and his business decisions, government policies to be pro-China. Um and so this reapproachment set the stage for China to be open to the rest of the world. He had Richard Nixon, uh, his trip to China, all that roadwork was all laid down by Pierre Trudeau. And so this opened the world to China. Um, and probably I think the biggest thing Trudeau did to, to allow China to have more influence in Canada itself was he, um, he agreed with Mao to have this scholarship program where Chinese students would go to Canada, Canada students would go to China. So there was no supervision over it at all. So China, they're now sending 120,000 students to Canada a year. Most of them today are, um, they're probably just honest people trying to get a better education. Um, but it became a key gateway for CCP infiltration, sending intelligence agents, which I will, we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and so uh, Pierre Trudeau, he, he opened the gates to, of Canadian society to the CCP. He wanted this friendship with them. And probably the, the best example of this is through this organization called the Canada-China Business Council. Um, so uh, we've written on this at the Trumpet before. Um, but this is interesting because this is where it re I think it starts to to show the power the CCP has over our elected officials. Um, and that is uh, the Canada-China Business Council was created um, in 1970. Um, and it took um, all the most powerful businesses in Montreal, basically Canada, but they, a lot of them were centered in Montreal. And they uh, made this alliance with 
uh, a company called CITIC, which was a CCP-run party. And this this introduced, for the first time, a CCP-run business into the Western market. And so now you have uh, all these these big, powerful Canadian companies. Uh, So some examples of them um, are... Uh, PowerCore, which I'll talk about in a minute more, which is it's a hydroelectric company. Uh, BMO Financial, it's a bank. Bombardier, uh, they b- make the airplanes, so the aerospace company. SNC-Lavalin, um, which is a, a powerful uh, tech company up here. Barrick Goldcore, massive gold company. Um, Manulife Financial and Sunlife Financial which are some of the, the two biggest financial institutions in Canada for insurance and that sort of thing. So now all these these powerful companies, they have this relationship with the CCP. And and this this uh, you have this Canada China Business Council Council, I'll call it the CCBC. Um, they they come into the country and they're basically trying to get as many uh, companies and, and businessmen as possible to do deals with China. Uh, the problem is um, they became intertwined with the Liberal Party. And so what started off as this business relationship, it was started by Paul Lin, that guy I talked about before. Paul Lin was one of the founding members, and he founded it with Paul Demaray Sr., um, who he's a he's a he was the CEO of PowerCore. He he died a few years ago, but Paul Demaray he had this vision of China um, dominating the world. He thought Mao was one of the four people he admired most, um, and so he he exerted um, a lot of influence on Canadian politics because Pierre Trudeau used to work for him. Um, Brian Mulroney worked for him. Jean Chrétien worked for him. And so did Paul Martin Jr. All four of those men were the prime ministers of Canada from 1970 to 1999, I think. So, so it, you have you could call it power this, corp this, for more than one reason. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's stunning. You have this CCP business racket connected to the Liberal and the Conservative Party exerting influence on Paul, like shaping the foreign policy of Canada for basically 40 years. The only thing that kind of interrupted it was Stephen Harper. But other than that, there was this constant flow of pro-China policies um, based on these, uh, what Paul Demaray did with Pierre Trudeau. Um, and it really set the course uh, to where we are today, where the Liberal Party is so intertwined with these these powerful companies who have business ties to China, that basically they can never go anti-China, <laughs> or they—I mean, there's there's billions at stake. They they're not going to to change this course they're on, and so that's why Justin Trudeau has followed in his dad's footsteps and been very pro-China, uh, because you have this this CCP uh, business Liberal Party relationship that dominates Canadian politics. So you have, I think this is a good example. You've shown us how something that started seemingly as uh, innocently, shall we say, or as uh, uh, insignificant as 
the character of missionary kids being susceptible to communist influence. In other words, uh, the ideology uh, the uh, uh, that they had, the beliefs that they had, uh, were not strong enough and, frankly, apparently not right, <laughs> which then produces this. And we haven't even, you haven't even hit on all the uh, current uh, ramifications of this, including the election, but other things as well. So I, I think, to me, this is an example of how, uh, oh, you know, so-and-so's gotten liberal or so-and-so's, you know, lost their faith or whatever. These things that seem to be uh, minor issues uh, are can turn into such a huge issue. Uh, uh, a huge thing when when weaponized by people who who know what they're doing so my point just being that our everyday behaviors our everyday beliefs and and the strength in this case the strength and and correctness of uh religion have uh, a major effect i remember herbert w armstrong we often quote him uh, predecessor uh uh, founded the plain truth, which is the predecessor to the trumpet. Uh, one of his very first articles was a warning that Christians have lost their power. So he's warning the churches uh, that they weren't um, uh, biblical enough and therefore strong enough to resist what was coming. And and this is uh, definitely related to to that. But you you brought us up to the current uh, state of affairs in Canada. We'll take a quick break before we hit exactly what this decades and generations of effort that the communist regime has put into Canada has resulted in here in 2023. We'll be right back.
Trumpet Hour listeners, welcome back. Thank you for being with us. We are with Abraham Blondeau, a trumpet writer in Canada, and he has walked us through a major development uh, that's happening in Canada. A lot of headlines have been made in recent weeks due to Canada's most recent election and the influence of China on that election and on the Canadian government in general. He's done the work to take us back and walk us through how generations of Canadians, or a couple of generations of Canadians, uh, beginning with a group of missionaries, have uh, intertwined with, intermixed with, ideologically, the uh, Chinese Communist Party, not just China and its culture, it's obviously a great people, but the specifically the Chinese Communist Party and its uh regime and its goals for the world and how that intermixture has resulted in what many Canadians just cannot even recognize as their own government today. So, Mr. Blondo, bring us uh, right into the present and tell us where uh, these, these, uh, how these seeds are blooming now in Canada. Yes. Yeah. So we've, we've covered a lot of ground, but, um, if we go to the modern day, so um, the Chinese intelligence apparatus that they use for that, that's how they uh, promote their goals and their agenda. It's quite sophisticated. Um, and so in Canada, it takes on a few different iterations. Um, but just to cover a couple things here. So um, the what China does, I think, which is different than the rest of the world is if you're Chinese and you, even if you leave China, they still view you as part of their, under their authority. So even if you go to Canada, United States, any other country, you even change citizenship, they still see you as a possible way to further the CCP's goals. And so the CCP is not just about managing China. It's not just about managing spies and, and their, those sort of things, which we'll get to. They view, everyone in the Chinese diaspora as part of this organization, whether they, they want to be a part of it or not. That's just, that's the thinking behind it. And so they have a few different um, mechanisms on how they do that. Um, so the first is called the Ministry of State Security. There's going to be a lot, some of these um, acronyms <laughs> are, are a bit alphabet soup because they, going from Chinese to English, they're, <laughs> they'd be a little awkward, but um, the Ministry of State Security, that's that's like their KGB. It's like their secret police. Um, so they do counterintelligence in China. They gather foreign intelligence, and they defend the interests of the CCP. Um, so during the Cold War, most of the West was focused all on the Soviet Union. And so that allowed China to send out uh, people into our other countries, really without a lot of surveillance. Um, so, I mean... The, these operations, so they use Chinese diplomats, uh, the embassies, students, scholars, business people, journalists. So basically any Chinese consulate, it's it's has counterintelligence operations going on inside of it. Doesn't matter where it is in the world. That's how it works. And then um, what they do is they set up these, these third-party outposts. Um, there was an expose, I think, a year ago about how Chinese had these secret police stations around the world where they persecute dissidents. 
so this falls under uh, this this government department where you have the embassy that's running it under diplomatic immunity. Then you have these other uh, outposts where they, they actively go after Chinese people. They prosecute them like they were in mainland China, even though they're supposedly free in these Western nations. So, I mean, they'll use anyone uh, possible. Most of the people who come from China, they, they honestly want to escape CCP government, but interspersed with them are uh, agents and spies and that sort of thing. So, for example, just to show you how, uh, just as one example of how successful they've been, in 1999, they stole the designs of U.S. thermonuclear weapons um, because they sent some scientists over. They went to the universities. They got in with the the lab that was working on these things, and so they stole those plants. And so that's just one example. There's dozens of other ones where they've stolen uh, U.S. and and Canadian and British and Australian uh, military technology or, or industry secrets, and brought them back to China. So that's that's part of what this Ministry of State Security does. Um, another one. This is the. The mouthful one is Overseas Chinese Affairs Office of the State Council. <laughs> so uh, the OCAO. Um, so what they do is there's about 50 million Chinese people outside of China living around the world. And so what they do is they they monitor these 50 million people and they, se they um, seek to manage them to help reach CCP goals. Um, they monitor dissidents. And they also try to keep people from China living in other countries loyal to the CCP. So that's propaganda, um, intimidation. There's lots of um, cases where, especially if they're prominent um, activists who, who are uh, protesting against Chinese human rights abuses, um, a lot of them, their families in China get uh, severely punished or intimidated. Um, there's even a few cases um, that Jonathan Manthorpe goes through in his book where um, they they call their family members will call them and then a member of the government will get on the phone and say like well if you if you keep protesting we're gonna your your family's gonna disappear and that happens all the time so they're very brutal but they they'll they they especially go after dissidents and people who could spread like a contagion of disloyalty to the CCP. Um, but the last one, I think this is probably the most pervasive one in Canada from what I could tell, and that's called the United Front. So the United Front, um, they use a lot of very obscure means to do so. It's not as cut and, not as cut and dry as these other two. Um, they use a lot of propaganda. They create these third-party organizations that they use to recruit intelligence agents. Um, and they're, they're also responsible for long-term clad and sign operations. So, I mean, we're talking about um, that's one thing the Chinese do that our Western nations don't is they think in terms of decades and even centuries. Like, they, they have a very long-term view of, of their goals. And so they'll start something decades ago and seek uh, uh, an outcome later on. They're very good at doing that. So the United Front is something Xi Jinping, the um, chairman of the CCP right now, he's he's really expanded it to 40,000 people in this department. Uh, he calls it his magic weapon. Basically, 
it has these nine departments that do different things in China, outside of China, but they create these organizations like the Canada-China Friendship Society or the China Association for International Friendly Contact or the China Painting Academy. <laughs> things that they're just innocent-sounding uh, organizations, but the United Front is using them to intimidate, to uh, get intelligence, to go after people. Um, and so in Canada, you see this thing all the time. I mean, uh, where I live, around where I live uh, here in Ontario, there's lots of these friendship societies. There's, we, there's a, a sister city program where each city in Ontario has a sister city in China that they share, uh, like there's there's like a, a student work program interchange with. So, I mean, you have all these things going on. And even if the people in them are honest, the United Front uses them for the CCP's purposes. And so it's everywhere. And it's, once you start to, to see just how pervasive it is, it's pretty shocking. So this is your country right now, Canada, and I see the same thing in my country here in America. And and we're all well, many of us are dumbfounded at with the situation that we find ourselves in. We were given a country. Canada was given a country. You were given a culture and a heritage, not just by brave or wise men who went before you, but by God, the same God that those missionaries were trying to re represent and who tragically uh, did it in a in a tragically underpowered way uh, I mean the communists know that they're in conflict with you they know they want to take your technology from you take your culture from you take your religion from you blot it out in fact uh, and that Bible that was taken to them in that tragically underpowered way uh, is scheduled to be blotted out of Canada uh, how could it not be it's not compatible with socialism and communism in general, and nor the Chinese Communist Party in particular. Uh, it's it's interesting, Abraham Blondeau, how the Bible and uh, its use and misuse uh, were was uh, at the beginning of this uh, process of turning Canada into what it's become today. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting angles once you break down how we got to where we are today and and you you look deeply into the glass and and see what your country actually is and um that the bible actually offers the solutions actually even indicates that this was going to happen um but it also if if the christianity actually preached from the bible would have protected them from everything that happened too um, but there is, but uh, Canada is mentioned in the Bible and everything we've been talking about. And um, in in the in the Bible, the it it's referred to as the tribe of Ephraim. So Canada and the British Commonwealth are descendants from the tribe of Ephraim in the Bible. So you can, this is all explained fully in um, Herbert W. Armstrong's book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy, which will outline in detail. Um, all of that to you. Um, but there's one particular prophecy about Ephraim the, that really uh, gets to the core of this, and that's found in Hosea 7. And there's just a few verses here in verse 8. It says, Ephraim, he has mixed himself among the people 
Ephraim is a cake not turned. So God said that in these last days, Ephraim would mix themselves with people of other nations, um, but also with the thinking and the ideas of other nations. And if you look at Canada, we're probably the best example of this multicultural mix of everything you can imagine. You'll find it here. We're, we're mixed our, we've mixed ourselves with the ideas, the other, even communism and the CCP. It's all, we're like a cake that's not, not mixing together. Um, and then the next verse, verse 9, it says, Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knows it not. And I think that's an amazing prophecy where we, this people like the CCP, the, these foreign nations, they're devouring our strength. They're taking away our resources, our technology, uh, our faith, um, our culture, uh, all these things that were anchors of our success uh, that God blessed us with. They're taking it, we don't even know it, because we're letting them do it. It's this fifth column uh, secret war going on that's, that's taking this all away from us. And I think that's just an amazing um, prophecy. And it continues, yes, gray hairs are here and there upon him, but he knows it not. He's growing older, Canada's growing older and weak, and most people don't even know what's happening. But in verse 11, it gets to the heart of why which says, Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. So just like a silly dove, it's naive, um, it doesn't see danger around it. That's really probably the best way to summarize Canada's relationship with the CCP. We've always had these leaders who are naive, who think that we can influence the CCP to change what they believe, or we're just blindly believe that they're, they're a benign organization we can work with. But I mean... In reality, the CCP and China, I mean, they're they're one of these prophesied kings of the East that is actually going to help bring down the United States and British Commonwealth in an economic siege. You can find that in uh, some other literature, Russia and China and Prophecy, our booklet there. But I think the big lesson from this is that we've all done it to ourselves. We've We've allowed them to weaken us from within, and we've strengthened them by being in this abusive relationship with them. And Canada has been the vanguard of that for the West ever since the CCP uh, were created. So for our Canadian listeners, our American listeners, and all of our listeners, if you needed an example of what happens when you don't keep your culture, not that uh, that uh, any one, any people are any better than any other people, but if your culture happens to have bits of God in it, <laughs> If it happens to have uh, bits of the Bible in it, uh, you need to be expanding those bits and uh, and not uh, l- uh, losing those to uh, other other gods, as it were, the uh, the the godless uh, influence of the of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Canada is your example. Canada is your example, and America, for all its power, uh, in comparison, and it's larger population and so forth uh is 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 another powerful example so there is a the point is there is a reason why these things are happening uh there's a reason why you you look at your country and you cannot recognize it 
Uh, and it goes back to that Bible those missionaries were carrying in their hands. Abraham Blondeau, we thank you for joining us from Canada. We thank you for all the service you do for other Canadians, for all of our Canadian listeners and Canadian readers of thetrumpet.com and all of our readers and listeners. Uh, We hope to uh, hear more from you uh, pretty soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. That's Abraham Blondeau, a writer for thetrumpet.com. He joins us regularly on this show, on the Wednesday show, and occasionally on the Friday show. And uh, he keeps us abreast of what's happening in Canada and uh, elsewhere around the world and throughout history, in fact. So you can go to thetrumpet.com, search Abraham Blondeau, and uh, see what he's written, and uh, be the better for it. That is Trumpet Hour for today, June 14th. You can find more coverage of Canada's history as well as other nations of the British Commonwealth by visiting thetrumpet.com and the author page of Abraham Blondeau. Look for a link in the show notes if you like, and email me at letters at thetrumpet.com if you like. If you have observations, news, or other thoughts about Canada, its history, its future, I'd like to thank Jesse Hester for production on today's episode, and I'd like to thank you for joining Mr. Blondeau and me today on Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.